as you pass There are signboards on the windows Saying, wait here, second class And to me, the whir and thunder Cluck of running gear Seems to be forever saying, saying Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here I am groping in the dark yet, as far as our area is concerned, and there may be many doubts and disappointments in store, but the hateful, lurid, drought sunset has gone from the skyline, and the night is cool, and there is a grateful breeze fanning, and young lovers steal past, and the water is creeping, creeping. I can feel it and smell it, creeping along the channels and gutters, bringing life and prosperity and ultimate rest and peace to an old dead land by plain and common sense methods, which in spite of the apparent magnitude of the scheme are as old as China and as simple. Dr. Gregory Bryan just shared an excerpt from Henry Lawson's article, Drought and Irrigation, published in Leeton's newspaper, The Marambiji Irrigator, on the 4th of February, 1916. I'm Anne-Marie Hansen, and together with Professor Bryan, in today's episode of the Henry Lawson's Crumbs podcast, we discuss some of the pieces Lawson wrote about Leeton and his time living in the Marambidgee Irrigation Area in 1916 and 1917. Good afternoon, Dr. Bryan. Hello, Anne-Marie. It's nice to see you again. Excellent, as usual. Now, I understand that Leeton was a town purpose-built, when the Marambidgee Irrigation Area was established at the beginning of the 20th century. Could you tell us a little bit about this area and why Lawson travelled there in January of 1916? Right, so J.F. Archibald was concerned about Henry's uh, continuing decline and, and alcoholism and poverty. And so late in 1915, he called together a group of Lawson's remaining friends, those who could still put up with him, uh, and they met with the Premier of New South Wales, William Holman. Now, uh, Archibald shared with Holman on that occasion a letter that had been written by a nurse who, who uh, had been caring for Henry in the Darlinghurst Mental Hospital. And she wrote, Lawson is destitute. He earns next to nothing and wastes that. He has exhausted the patience of most of his friends and is a constant tax upon those who stand by him. So that was the situation, that uh, he wasn't earning money. Whatever he did, he wasted. And, and really, he got to the point through his uh, begging um, that he'd become a nuisance. However, in that letter, that nurse... Sister McCallum, she she did sing the praises of Isabel Byers. Now, Mrs. Byers, I've mentioned her before. She was essentially Henry's caretaker at this at this particular time. Now, she was sixty-seven at at the time that we're talking, so she was nineteen years older than Henry. Although Henry was prematurely aged uh, by his lifestyle. So anyway, in the meeting with the premier that Archibald and, and some other friends attended, uh, the group tossed around different ideas of what they might do to help Henry and what, what indeed would be best for him. And somebody came up with the idea 
of the government giving him a, a literary role. Uh, and so the suggestion actually then got to the point of him writing promotional materials for the Murrumbidgee irrigation area because they needed settlers to move down there to take up to take farms and to work the land. Now the irrigation area had originally been opened in 1912, so just a few years earlier, um, and this is now 1915 when this meeting's taking place. So there had been settlers, but many of the men who had moved there to take up these farms and to work the land, well, then that enlisted in, in the First World War. So the, the settlers they had, they had lost, and of course there was the prospect then of losing more. So, so there was this idea then, well, you know, that they could employ Henry and he would write, write about the area and in doing so attract settlers to, to uh, move there. Now, one of the people involved uh, who was a friend of Henry's and, and worked for the government, like he was a politician, was Thomas March, and he, he'd, all, he'd been a journalist. So he, he travelled down to the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area, and just to give you an idea, it's about 550 kilometres inland from Sydney. So that's, you know, just the distance that we're talking. So anyway, Thomas Much, he, he visited there just to check it all out and to see if, if it might actually be a, a really a satisfactory solution to this, I guess, Henry Lawson problem. And so he checked it out and decided that it was going to be a, a suitable place that would be a benefit not just to Henry, of course, but indeed to the government and to the, to the uh, state. And so after much negotiation, a government-sponsored position was organised in, in this Murrumbidgee irrigation area in the town of Leeton. And initially it was a six-month position, although that was extended. So now when you remember that it was Archibald that had sent Henry to Burke back in 1892, and when Henry got there to Burke, he wrote that uh, Burke has the name of being the most drunken town on the Darling River. So in order, in, given that Archibald's intent was to get Henry away from drinking, I mean, that was turned out to be a really bad choice of a destination. But one of the attractions of Leeton was that it was a dry area. And so there wasn't going to be that same problem. So you know, nobody there was allowed to sell alcohol, whereas, I mean, in the other settlements around about, like uh, Narandera, for instance, alcohol was, you know, alcohol sales were permissible. And so as it turned out, when Henry got there, he, just, he would just occasionally travel to, to Narandera to visit the uh, Criterion Hotel. But by and large, you know, it was a place where he w wouldn't be able to drink or certainly not to excess. So, I mean, that was a great part of it, as well as the, um, the practical, logical aspect that there was work to be done, and he was well suited to do it, because Henry actually had been crying out for decades about the need to irrigate, to preserve water in this uh, dry land. So, again, when he'd been to Burke, this was one of the things that really actually quite bothered him, and that he did write about quite a lot was that he'd seen in that time you know, droughts and, and floods and he just thought that it was senseless that all of this water during a flood would go to waste and then, you know, whatever it might be, a year or two, three years later, people were crying out for water, which of course by this stage had disappeared. 
So he was all about irrigation or dams and uh, preserving, so preserving the water and then you know uh, making channels and things so that it could be accessed and used when it was needed. So in fact, that was actually what had happened here or was happening here in this Murrumbidgee irrigation area. And there was another Burke connection. Was that this uh, Sam? And I'm not sure of the pronunciation. I I say McCaughey. He had actually owned Turali, the shearing, the station that uh, that Henry um, worked in, or one of the stations that where Henry worked as a rouseabout when he was in the Burke area. So there's that connection. But this this McCaughey, this Sir Samuel McCaughey, he at this time had a large station and a homestead in this Murrumbidgee, or what became the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area. So it was actually his land that he had then sold to the government, but only after he had actually started to dig some of these channels, funneling water from the Murrumbidgee River. You get, there are these Burke connections. The area, too, is sometimes referred to, and Henry refers to it as Yanko, and that was because the property, um, McCaughey's property, was called Yanko Station. So anyway, in mid-January 1916, Henry uh, travelled down to this Yanko or Murrumbidgee irrigation area and, and took up residence in Leeton. And he, as he had as a companion, Mrs. Byers, his caretaker, she travelled with him. They travelled on a train and as we've seen elsewhere, Henry often travelled by trains and in a piece in the bulletin that, that appeared in the bulletin in 1916, Henry chronicled some of his train journeys, including this journey to Leeton with Mrs. Byers and her dog Charlie. So what did you make of that uh, piece called Travelin'? It, it's an interesting piece in that it is really written in two parts. So it does indeed, as you mentioned, chronicle the trip with the caretaker, Mrs. Byers, and, and the dog Charlie. But it also begins with... Uh, I would say, a flashback or a, a time where he had traveled previously. And it's interesting because he seems to bemoan the changing spirits of the travelers. And he, in that first part of it, laments what has changed in, in the people. And in the second part, he seems to bemoan and lament Mrs. Byers, right? <laughs> he, he, he talks about the fortnight uh, of a nightmare, getting ready and packing with Mrs. Byers' help. Uh, he, he suggests that she makes things worse off. Uh, he writes, behind me, a fortnight of nightmare, clearing up my own <laughs> affairs and packing and creating furniture under the advice of a little woman who was worse when she tried to assist. Um, and so he certainly makes a, a point of pointing out that though he appreciates Mrs. Byers' Uh, support and he knows I think he needs her uh, he, he, his view at this point in time is that he doesn't always get the help he'd like yeah. and in your book it's interesting you you tell a story about what the time just before the traveling that Mrs. Byers tried to help I'm wondering if you could just share that story briefly about the screws you recall it right well that I, I just yeah just vaguely but yeah I remember um, the detail was that he had been into the city on business at you know tying up some loose ends or whatever before he left uh, before he left uh, Sydney but before he left his home uh, mrs. Byers home before he left there he had taken apart all of the furniture 
and had piled up the different screws so that he knew what 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 set of screws went with what art, article of uh, furniture. And so he put them and left them lying around in these little piles <laughs> um, to be to be used when they, he reconstructed the furniture when they got down to Leeton. But Mrs. Byers, in her attempts to assist, had actually tidied up all of these piles and swept them all in together so they're in one nice, neat pile. But, of course, for Henry, um, he no longer knew uh, any, well, which screw went with which article of furniture. So, yeah, so that, that's, I guess, that, uh, that little woman who was worse when she tried to assist. At least he acknowledges that she's trying to assist, but he really is saying, you know, I'd, I'd, much, I'd much prefer that you just step aside. Thank you. Yeah, so it's, right. a, fun, it's a funny story, um, you know, and, and it's, I think Henry could actually see the humour in it, but it was sort of mm -hmm. a dark humour. And he, he did yeah. describe this time, you know, that he was loaded down, uh, you know, he travelled, he set off in the train, loads of sin, sins and sorrows and pains and cares. So that's how Henry was, and that's why his friends had actually decided, well, he needs to be somewhere else, he needs to have another place, another opportunity, because he is loaded down in this manner. Just after the transition in this piece where he writes, I'm now for another trip, he talks about the platform moment where he leaves the the friends behind, so to speak. And you do get the sense that he recognizes that they're trying to help, right? right. Um, and another key idea that popped out in this piece for me was the idea of plenty. And it's because this train journey was so long, it seems, over 500 kilometers. But as he's getting closer and closer to the irrigation area, he writes seas of wheat, right? Yeah. Seas of it on both sides and all to feed the great ant swarming, mostly useless city life, <laughs> uh, a city like Sydney. So he he sees the plenty, he sees the success of what he, as you mentioned earlier, in 1903, uh, suggested was a way to save the nation, essentially. Um, and you see that description as he's moving on the train from Sydney, getting closer to Leeton, the, the sea of wheat, and obviously the success. But at the same time, just even like with his description of Mrs. Byers, there's, there's a a downside to it, right? And so he recognizes the success, but he questions what's going to happen with it. Yeah, and, and you mentioned to feed uh, the useless city, um, but also he also says to feed the soldiers, right, who yes. are going to kill each other. So, yeah, so I, it's a, a good uh, pickup from you that there is this sort of backhanded part of it as well. So he's, he's certainly he's astonished by this. He says, wheat, wheat, wheat. Um, mm -hmm. So he's astonished by that, but he, there is a sense of even a sense of doom or futility about it all. Yeah, futility is a good word. Yeah. Now, in your book, Mates, you mentioned that Lawson was very fond of recording his first impressions of places. And we've talked about that previously. And it seems that, well, you call it a mania and that this mania of recording his first impressions continued with his arrival uh, at Leeton, you write that Henry, quote, had barely drawn breath before he was penning his first impressions. So what can you tell us about Henry's initial or first impression of Leeton? 
Yeah, well, just before I do that, um, yes, I do refer to it as a mania, but that word comes from Henry. The Henry himself described it as a mania, so that's where oh. I got that from, yeah. Okay. So he, he recognized that. But yeah, so Henry's first impressions, well, I mean, he notices one thing straight away, and he says there is, <laughs> there is something hauntingly wanting, something weirdly unreal about the place, and as I said, it's a dry area. So that's, that's I think, the first thing that Henry notices he says, yes, the barber's shop is here. And he says, the grocer's shop, drapers, butchers, bakers, newsagents, ironmongers, etc., etc. And then he goes on and says, the dentist, chemist, doctor, and schoolmaster, the ministers are here. I expect, uh, oh, he says, uh, quiet men who know a great deal and say little, I expect. And the policeman is here. He goes on and then he says, Yes, all things are here that are in most country towns and more. And then in capital letters, but lo and behold, the pub is not here. So that's what he notices straight away is that nobody's selling alcohol. And I'm sure he's wondering, well, how on earth am I going to survive here? Now, I, I mentioned, um, the, he mentioned uh, the, 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 um, the ministers, and then he also says the churches, creeds, my old friend, the Salvation Army, uh, and my older friends, the ungodly, are here. But in terms of um, the ministers, one of the things that he doesn't mention is this ongoing debate that he soon must be reading about in the local newspaper, the Murrumbidgee Irrigator. We've talked before about the bush battle between Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson. In this case, I call it a beer battle because we have <laughs> we have these two ministers. There's uh, Reverend R. H. Campbell, who's a Methodist minister who's against alcohol and thinks that uh, Leeton should continue with prohibition. And then there's the Roman Catholic priest Father P. Reedy, who's for alcohol, and they go back and forth for weeks in this local newspaper, each arguing their their point and uh, calling on the Bible to defend uh, their, or to make their points. And it actually gets quite personal. And there's certainly a suggestion that they should actually settle the matter with a boxing match. So, it's, <laughs> so it's, I'm sure Henry was highly entertained, as was I, when I was reading about these things as I was going through the Murrumbidgee Irrigator uh, issues. So that, these are the things that Henry noticed, uh, you know, just the absence of a pub, and, and I'm sure he was wondering what on earth he was going to do without uh, access to alcohol. So this was um, the sort of the, what's called the first impressions, but he, he followed this very shortly thereafter with another early impression piece called Drought and Irrigation, and that was published just seven days later than the first impressions was published. So what lines or ideas stood out to you in this piece, Anne-Marie? Well, just to give an overview of the piece, it is like a part two of his initial impressions. And it's fascinating in that it really is, I'll use a word I used earlier, it's a, it's a, a lament for the people who have, the, the farmers who have struggled unsuccessfully with the land up until this point. And though it does ultimately come to celebrate the production and the sort of life-giving force that the place now affords, as was evident in that introductory quotation that you read, right? He can feel it. He can feel the, the life and the rejuvenation in the area. 
it really, for the most part, is a, a, a lament for what has what has been sacrificed up until this point. And so a line that stuck out for me was one that read, there was no water nor hope there. And so I just think that that captured the, the absence of, in a practical terms, the productivity of the land, but also how that depleted the souls of these farmers. And of course, he goes on to describe the, the sacrifice of the farmers. And then you come to realize that the farmer he's really lamenting is his father. Yeah. And so it is a incredibly moving piece, though nonfiction, right? And I'm a fan of the fiction. It, it feels like fiction in how, in its pathos, in its emotional draw for you. Well, no, I, I agree. And certainly he's saying, you know, that essentially the, the land had killed his father uh, and really all that he was wanting for was a reliable water supply. And if it had that, like in the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area, well, then things would have been very different for his father and, and in, in turn for, for Henry and for his whole family. So, yeah, so that's certainly very sad. Um, but he does he does comment on some other things too. Of course, he he takes the opportunity once again to take a shot at people being interested in sport, as Henry mm -hmm. often did, and, and we had him do that when he went to New Zealand. He wrote, "I think that if the race course were ploughed and sown with cabbages, and that if every race course in the Commonwealth were ploughed and sown with whatever might grow there, it would be a grand thing." So that was something that Henry that was sort of one of his hobby horses. That Australians and indeed others were too interested in sport. Right, and and he mentions that in his description of the stud farm, right? So connecting it to the racehorsing, I, I I'm imagining that it was that 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 sport had taken over the land that uh, his father had originally worked, and so something that he already didn't appreciate then supplanted the the space that his father tried to make a life from. And then, yeah. and then another another point that jumped out at me also was that Henry, I think right at the start of the piece, recognises the diversity in the place and he, he refers mm -hmm. to it as the most cosmopolitan place I have ever been in. And, of course, remembering that this is well after Henry's been not just to New Zealand three times, but he's been to England and lived in England. And, of course, he's lived much of his life in Sydney and yet this small, essentially a country town, was uh, had so much diversity, so he was struck by that. I think excited by it as well. Yeah, he describes it as the most cosmopolitan place I had ever been, and perhaps I found this an interesting comment: most naturally intellectual and democratic. Yeah. I, I found that a curious way to describe the place. Yeah, so that that is interesting that he noticed that. You know, he concluded that just from his what were were essentially just his first impressions. And again, I think quite a contrast to, to at least some of his impressions about the uh, the outback shearers and and such that he'd struck in uh, in in and outside of Burke. Right, and he concludes with that lovely description that we began with. But he says quite simply, things are better down here, right, and not too much to grumble about. And so, despite what had preceded the prosperity of this area and his lament for the people who sacrificed, he recognizes the success of the place, at least 
that's how I read it. Yeah, no, I agree. And we, you know, we've got to also remember if we go back to our discussion one time a few weeks back of um, pursuing literature in Australia, that had been responded to by one of his mates, Ted Brady, who essentially said, you know, just you complain about everything. And so here, again, we we already discussed, he's still finding some things to complain about, but less so here when he actually gets to Leeton, you know, a little bit less so. So he does seem to be uh, perhaps to have found a place despite the absence of alcohol. He's, I think, recognizing, well, perhaps I've found a place that actually is very, is, is very appealing. And then he continues to explore these ideas in a poem called Leeton Town which is published in the Murrumbidgee Irrigator in February, on February the 11th. So again, another week after, in this case, a week after drought and irrigation. So he's publishing a lot very early on in this local newspaper, which is what you would expect too when this, uh, this recognised celebrity writer comes to town. So what did you make of uh, Leeton Town, the poem? Well, I think that it is indeed, as you stated, a continuation of the ideas that he activates in drought and irrigation. And it was really neat to see these ideas transformed into poetry, right? So it is similar in that it describes what has been a, a failing, so to speak, that had come before, and then the success of the quote-unquote promised land that Leeton has become. And he writes... We come from ages of fruitless work, from hopes and daydreams that perished there. So it's it certainly is a reminder to the readers that the people who make up this quote-unquote cosmopolitan area come from all over, and indeed he, he specifies various places that these people came from, and they're all converging at Leeton. And so you get, though, then all of these different perspectives and voices coming into this one one place and he writes from place 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 specifying various places a long month's drag to the promised land so he he suggests that they work worked hard to to get there and that they're invested in the success of the place and that this place leeton proves to be a location of reprieve it seems that it the poem ends with hope and and a celebration of what the Murrumbidgee irrigation can do for, as he mentioned in that 1903 piece, the nation, right? It it, it seems like it is a potential savior. And you know, just on that 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 uh, excerpt that you just read from or, or quoted, I really like the word choice. It's really clever. We come from ages of fruitless work. So not um, futile work or something like that, but fruitless work, because you know, he's talking here about Leeton, and one he's one of the things he's noticing is that all, all of this fruit growing. So we talked about the, the he noticed the wheat fields as he got closer and closer, but when you go to when you go to the Murrumbidgee irrigation area, when I did, one of the things that I was struck by was all of these different fruit trees. So there's oranges growing there and there's apples growing there and there's peaches growing there. So there's all sorts of fruit. It really is, a, well, he, the word choice earlier, again, was promised land. It really is a land sort of flowing with milk and honey. And so I just thought that was a, a magnificent word choice right there to, to refer to 
the previous experiences. You know, we come from ages of fruitless work. So it's just really clever, really clever writing, I think. Well, and just one more comment about this poem. It, it, as a continuation of Drought and Irrigation, the nonfiction piece that has that really powerful image of his father's hands, right? Yeah. And how they, and the tools that they held and how he would, how they would, he would hold on to them until they fell out, essentially. Um, in contrast to the description of Leeton area, where Lawson begins the poem with the line, we lie at rest when the day is late on stretches, stretchers set on verandas wide. So this complete contrast between the brutality of working the land before and the peace and luxury that perhaps it can afford with the irrigation tools in place. In our last episode, we talked to Jim Everett and you did a great job of explaining the connections, but just briefly, Jim Everett is the grandson of the writer Jim Gordon, who wrote under the pen name Jim Graham. And your book, Mates, is about this enduring friendship between these two gentlemen, Henry Lawson and Jim Gordon. And we began that episode, that conversation with Jim Everett, by reading an excerpt from By the Banks of the Mar of Marambidgee, wherein Lawson describes the Leeton area and the Marambidgee irrigation area and more importantly, recalls his time in the area with Jim Graham. Could you or would you tell our listeners more about this particular work and Lawson's connection or reconnection with Jim while in Leeton? Right. So I mentioned earlier in, in today's podcast, I mentioned some of these connections that uh, with, with Burke. And I mentioned, you know, Henry, when he'd been in Burke, he'd, he thought that the Darling River should be dammed and, and uh, you know, the water preserved. And I also mentioned this Samuel McCaughey uh, and his connection with the Turali shearing state or shearing shed. But the main Burke connection, however, is Jim Gordon, this Jim Graham, because Henry and uh, Jim had traveled together and, and carried their swags together when Henry was living in Burke. So that was in 1893. So this now is 1916, so 23 years later. And so Henry gets to Leeton, and of course, as a celebrity, his arrival in Leeton is announced in the local newspaper, this Murrumbidgee Irrigator that we've been referring to. And so the issue, Friday, January the 14th, it said that Henry had arrived on the Tuesday. Now, Jim Gordon read that paper. Jim was living there, and he read the paper. And so just imagine his shock then to learn that his old mate, this famous Henry Lawson, had moved to Leeton. So Jim wrote a note to Henry, uh, although he said it was not without some hesitation because he wondered, uh, as, as Jim wrote, he wondered how the applause of all Australia and other parts of the world may have affected him. In other words, I don't know if he's the same person anymore. So he wrote a note to Henry, and Henry responded really enthusiastically. I was delighted to get your note. Drop in any day you're in and we'll get acquaint again and arrange a time for a long chat either here or at your place. So and it just so happened that they bumped into each other uh, very shortly thereafter, and it seems from the things that that uh, that they write, that both of them write, 
is that they just picked up just where they'd left off 23 years earlier. And that time, Jim was only a teenager. He was 18 when they first met. So 23 years later, he's, you know, he's twice the age. So they're, they're much older, of course. But anyway, so they decide in this, uh, by the banks of the Murrumbidgee, it, it says that they, they decide to go and camp by the river and f go fishing. But really, as Henry says, really just a guise. They just want to spend time with one another and get, re as Henry wrote in that note, get reacquaint again. So in other words, to get reacquainted once again. And so they go fishing. And so this truly is one of my favorite Lawson works. It really is because of this wonderful reunion and them just being able to just get straight back into the swing of things with one another. And you can see almost immediately from the way that Henry describes events that he's just fe almost immediately just feeling so much better about being back out in the bush again, being camped under the stars, and of course, especially to be with Jim again. So I, I just love the impact that uh, that is apparent, even though Henry doesn't say it, that he's feeling better. You can just tell that he is. Although in one place in this, by the banks of the Murrumbidgee, Henry actually says that he almost shot Jim. Because uh, <laughs> uh, Henry's got up early in the morning and want, taken the gun and wandered down along the river to see if he might shoot some ducks. And as he's coming back along the bank, he rounds a bend. And I guess just because of the way that uh, of Jim's hat and the, the unusual way that, that uh, Jim used to sit, uh, Henry thought, and also Henry also says that he had the, the rising sun in his eyes. So Henry thought that Jim was a pelican and therefore, you know, robbing them of their fish. So Henry, I guess, was just about to shoot him when he realized that it was, uh, that it was Jim. Although, again, with a, a sense of the uh, humor, the good humor that's coming back into Henry, into his uh, nature. He says, it might have been worthwhile from a sentimental point of view just to hear Jim swear again in the old style. So he says, maybe I should have shot him just to hear Jim swear at me once again. So, so yeah, I really love this piece. And um, as I said, it's, it's certainly one of my favorites just because of the sense that we get of Henry almost immediately feeling much, much better. Now, of course, we know that Henry just loved uh, Jim Gordon, but that fondness for Jim extended then beyond Jim and Eve to his family. And so one of the, his special loves was one of Jim's daughters. And he wrote about his affection for uh, Jim's young daughter in a piece called Bonnie of Our Area. So what did you make of that piece, Anne-Marie, and, and of Bonnie? Well, I have a question. Do you know if this piece has been published in any other collection? Not during Henry's lifetime. It's certainly been included in, you know, there's books now that have the complete works of Henry Lawson and such, but uh, it was not included in any books during Henry's lifetime. Well, I, if it's not easily found, I encourage our listeners to seek it out because it's a delightful piece. It, it, it describes, well, it, it starts off suggesting that there's this, Bonnie, who Henry Lawson carries home from the theater, and she, you know, she's coquettish and etc. And you don't know when you're first reading the beginning that this is a small. I think he's she's two and a half, yeah. but it's a sweet story of 
of a, a real strong affection between Lawson and I think children in general, from what I understand, right? But especially for Jim's for Jim's younger young children. I found though the ending, and I know we don't have much time, so I'll, I'll maybe just comment quickly on it, is that what he seems to appreciate very much in Bonnie, but I think in children more generally, is their innocent love, their lack of judgment for him, because I think he saw himself, as he has stated, a, a sinner, right? A flawed man. And he didn't, wasn't deceived by his own image of himself. And he writes at the end of Bonnie of our area, the, this Bonnie was the, oh, oh, if he was found and they found a portrait on him, it would, it would be the portrait of a child who believed I was everything I should have been, mm. right? And so in that, you recognize Lawson's deep appreciation for, for Gordon's extension or sharing of his family, but also how he valued the innocence that comes with childhood and how the, that he wasn't, Lawson wasn't judged by Bonnie or Frank or any of other Gordon's children. He found solace in their acceptance. And I think it allowed him to perhaps accept himself a bit more. Yeah, that's right. I mean, she, she, this, this two and a half year old girl, she tells Henry that he is a good man. And, you know, mm -hmm. Henry says, well, he essentially he says, well, there's lots of people who wouldn't agree with you. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so that, that is very touching. It is, it is unfortunate. It, you know, if you think about what Jim said last week, Jim Everett, he said that when she got older, Bonnie didn't, like Henry, um, but this, this of course, would be after Henry had passed away because Henry died just six years later. So in terms of this not being published in a book during Henry's lifetime, Henry did die only six years later. But um, I guess Bonnie, as, as an older person, her attitude towards Henry, as Jim said, Jim said last week said that she considered him just an old drunk. So right. that, that's, really, that's really unfortunate. That's really sad is what it is. Well, and I think it's a reflection of what Lawson appreciated about young people in general, right? Yeah. Because they do take on that, you know, once a drunk, always a drunk, completely a drunk. And we stop being able to see what else is present. But the children, Bonnie in particular in this story or in this piece, is able to see the value behind the flaws or within the flaws. So yeah, it's a sweet, sweet piece. Uh, delightful, actually. Yeah, good. Yeah, no, I enjoy it. I'm glad that you did as well. Now, in your book, you mentioned that the writer Mary Gilmore, and we've spoken about her quite a bit, stated that Lawson's experiences at Leeton are recorded in an eight-part series of short fiction referred to as the Previous Convictions series. More specifically, you argue that, quote, the series is clearly a record of Lawson's experiences in Leeton, but also a reflection of his often mixed, dynamic, and contradictory emotions there. So in pre preparation for today's discussion, we read just one of the series called A Wet Camp, and I'm interested in what stood out to you in this story and if you think this wet camp, a wet camp story illustrates your suggestion that the whole series is autobi autobiographical in both experience and emotion. 
Big yeah. question. No, no, and it's it is. It's a multifaceted question too. But yeah, so the the two protagonists in this series are two men by the name of Previous Convictions and Dottie. Now they're actually both, as far as I'm concerned, they're both reflections of Henry Lawson. But I also see them as Henry and Jim uh, together. Mm. Uh, so I so I like that. And the reason that I chose this particular one out of the eight parts, uh, this uh, wet camp, why I chose this one, is because in this we have Previous and Dottie being camped together in the rain. And in his notebooks, Jim wrote of a time when Henry and, and he were camping and it was raining very heavily. And Jim awoke, as he recorded, he awoke to um, find that it had been raining heavily. But he said that he was snug and dry and warm because Lawson had kept the fire going all night. And what's more, above Gordon, uh, Henry had rigged up this, uh, this shelter. Uh, Gordon said, it stretched tightly on frail sticks was one of Lawson's blankets. So Henry had taken his own blankets and used them to rig up a shelter above Henry, uh, sorry, above Jim. And Lawson's other blanket he used then to cover Jim's legs and body. So Gordon realized, and he, he wrote, that all through the night Henry hadn't even lain down. But when the rain started, he had hastily rigged his blanket into an awning. And after covering me with the remainder of his bedding, he had waited and watched through the night, stoking the fire and tirelessly attending to the crazy awning clinging to it when the wind blew and poking up the sagging bulges as they filled with water. So in this, uh, and he, when Jim woke up and, and noticed this, he, he thanked Henry for doing it. And Henry's response was, ah, but then nothing matters between mates, which is just such a nice sentiment. Mm -hmm. And so in this, in this story, a wet camp, I'm reminded of that episode from their lives. Because we have we have Dottie rigging up this shelter from the rain for the two of them, and he does it with his own blanket, just as Henry did with his own blanket. So there are similarities there in this story that I really like because I really enjoy this period of Henry's life because I do think that he's happy and perhaps yeah. as as happy as at any time in his life, and he gets healthier and healthier. Because of um, you know he has this purpose through the writing responsibilities he's been assigned, but also of course because there's limited alcohol intake. So for me, this is a great time in Henry's life, and um, so I like this story as a part of that time, but also because of this autobiographical reflection that we get there between a real event. Um, between Henry and Jim, and in this case, Dottie and Previous. So yeah, for me, it's a, it's fantastic. I really do think that this year and a half or so is um, amongst and maybe even arguably the most happy time in Henry's life. And it's a pity it was just a year and a half. But again, we've talked about it before, that was Henry's way. The gr grass was always greener. And so after a year and a half or so, a little bit longer, um, but certainly less than two years, he was uh, anxious to get back to Sydney. It, it seems, too, that it was a very productive time in terms of his writing. He was putting, I, I can't remember exactly where you say it, but in your book you, you talk about how he 
was trying to put together a, a collection, I think, of yep. sorts. And he quickly produced the amount of writing or, yeah, he quickly produced what he wanted to collect just shortly after his arriving there. Yeah, so right. it seems like with his return health and a more optimistic spirit um, also flowed through the end of his pen. He seems like this was also a great time of writing for him. Yeah, that's right. Productivity. Nothing ever came of that book plan. Like there wasn't a book planned. He had planned to call it what he had a couple of titles in mind. One of them was the Yanko book. Um, but so that was never published. But yes, there were these stories and poems published in the local newspaper, the Murrumbidgee Irrigator, but others like the Banks of the Murrumbidgee that was published in the Bullen. So he was publishing, um, certainly publishing a lot, and obviously getting paid for it as well as getting paid by the government for his job. So, so yeah, it was a it was a good time that helped to uh, at least temporarily rectify some of the problems in his life. That's the end of our time today. In closing, we say thank you to John Schumann and David Minear for permission to use musical e excerpts from their Lawson album. If you are enjoying our discussions of the life and work of Henry Lawson, please tell others about our podcast and encourage them to subscribe. And remember also that this year, 2022, marks 100 years since the death of Henry Lawson. And next year, 2023, marks 100 years of the Henry Lawson Memorial and Literary Society. Next week, I will be talking with two people from the Society, the Society President and also the editor of the Lawsonian. Thank you, Dr. Brian. Thank you very much, Anne-Marie. I remember, oh man, I remember The tracks that we followed are clear the jovial last nights of December The solemn first days of the year Long tramps through the clearings of the timber Short partings on platform and pier I remember, oh man, I remember The tracks that we followed are clear